This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Space Oddity. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Star Stuff. My name is Cody Halfmoon, and today we will be talking about comets, asteroids, and something called centaurs. I'm joined by one of our favorite co-hosts, Haley Osborne. Hey! <laughs> Hello. A Lowell educator, research assistant, and TikTok queen, Hannah Zygo. Hi! And our special guest today is Dr. Teddy Coretta. Hi! Hello! And um, I feel like typically we will just call everyone by their first name, but um, I feel yeah, like good. we need to say Dr. Teddy the whole time because uh, <laughs> Hannah, Hannah added to our, our episode notes that it's um, you recently got your PhD. Yeah, the end of September. It still feels, you know, really good when people say doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, any, any excuse to inflate my ego, I will definitely <laughs> Well, so the new Dr. Teddy Coretta recently joined Lowell (laughs) last year, working as a postdoc, working with Dr. Nick Moskowitz. So again, congrats on the PhD. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, thanks. So tell us a little bit about graduating from U of A. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it was strange. When we started there, we were supposed to call it U Arizona, but then they rebranded to U of A. <laughs> so I still don't really know what to call it. Um yeah, so I did my my PhD in planetary science uh, at the University of Arizona at their lunar and planetary laboratory. Um there are a couple other people up here at Lowell who also went to LPL, as we called it. Um and my PhD research focused on uh, using telescopes here on the ground to study comets and asteroids in the solar system, uh, primarily, you know, the same wavelengths of light, the same colors of light that, you know, your eyes would see, um, and a little bit redder as well. And I wanted to understand what they were made out of and, you know, what they're made out of and how that related to, for instance, what their orbits are, where they are in the solar system, and, and sort of big picture questions like that. And, um, you know, as, as Hannah mentioned, you're here working with Nick Moskowitz on the MANOS project, which stands for Mission Accessible Near-Earth Object Sur- uh, Survey, which, Hannah, you're also working on that. Yeah. So just for context, Hannah, tell us a, a little bit about your research really quickly, just for that kind of context. Yeah, so again, it's the Mission Accessible Near-Earth Object Survey. So the point of the project is to study as many near-Earth objects as we can and then make them accessible to the public, to other scientists. And so my part in the research is reducing a lot of the data that we get from these near-Earth objects and looking at their light curve to kind of tell kind of how they look like. And then from that, be able to get some of their taxonomic colors. So hopefully be able to tell what they're made up of. Awesome. And uh, Teddy, what do you do on the MANOS project? Yeah, so I, at least while I've been here, I've been in charge of both doing all of the observations and staying up late at night to use either, you know, Lowell's big telescope, the Lowell Discovery Telescope, or, you know, other research, you know, huge telescopes. Um, So not only conducting the observations, but also picking which objects we study and how and why. Um, It's a really nice job in that, you know, in principle, I have to observe things that are going to one day maybe be visited by spacecraft. And I think that's a really important job. And at the same time, I also get the freedom of, you know, I can input my own preferences, right? You know, I always want to just observe the tiniest little things possible because I think that's fun, right? Observing an asteroid the size of my apartment 
or smaller is just cool. So the fact that I can make a point to focus on that, I think is a really fun opportunity. So do you control the joystick, which is how I picture it, despite <laughs> having been there at LDT? You know, I actually have used a telescope with a oh joystick. Oh my gosh, so. that was a joke, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that those things still exist. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, for a long time, that was the way you had That's to do awesome. it. That's um, awesome. Yeah, so, you know, I'm the one who handles all the stuff from, you know, picking the targets to pointing the telescope to making sure the instruments and cameras and sensitive instruments and all that sort of stuff are doing exactly what we want. That way, you know, myself and others, especially Hannah, can go down the line and, and pick some really interesting science out of all these different kinds of observations that we're doing. Awesome. Okay. So the, uh, the MANOS project primarily focuses on near-Earth asteroids, but uh, does your research focus specifically on near-Earth asteroids, or are there other solar system objects you have been studying? I think there are. When I, when I first applied to school or grad school, I, I knew that I didn't want to just be an asteroid person or a comet person, partially just because I'm selfish and I didn't want to pick, <laughs> right? I didn't want to have to choose. Um, but, you know, as I've done more and more research and just learned more and more and more, a lot of my interests have shifted further and further out in the solar system. So starting with near-Earth objects that might be visited by spacecraft, like what I do now, um, but then moving on to comets in sort of the middle solar system and then, you know, comets and centaurs in the far outer solar system. Um, I find that, you know, you can use the same kinds of techniques, the same kinds of observations for all different kinds of objects within the solar system and learn a lot of different interesting things that, you know, it's worth intercomparing, right? Often people who work on stuff that's like really close to the sun made out of rocks and the people who work on stuff that's really far away from the sun made out of ice, they don't talk to each other as much as maybe they should. So it's a, it's a fun area to work in. You've said this twice and I'm just nodding because everyone here is pretty intelligent. Are you saying that like places that ask that a uh, spacecraft can land on, you keep saying that about asteroids. Um, are, are there plans to land on an asteroid? Is that what I'm gathering here? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So you're totally right. Um, you know, one of the reasons that the Mission Accessible Near-Earth Object Survey, it's fun to say the long name, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> no, right? don't stop. Um, it's great. Part of, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can try to up the radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, so part of the reason that, that Monos is really interesting is we've now visited several asteroids up close. And this isn't just flying by. This isn't getting close and taking some pictures. From multiple asteroids that we've gone and touched the surface and picked up the material that makes them um, and brought it back to the earth so scientists can study it in the lab instead of humans having to go out in space and do all that dangerous work out there right um, so we're still finding near-earth objects all the time new objects that maybe one day we'll want to do the same thing with go up and visit figure out what they're made out of and figure out how they compare to for instance meteorites on the ground other asteroids tons of different really interesting science um, so, you know, the uh, MONOS survey, or I guess the S is already a survey, the MONOS project. Um, it sounds more ominous that way. The MONOS project sounds yeah. really scary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> especially with the logo, it's a hand and it's like the word MONOS meeting hand, so it's, it's great. Um, um, uh, so either way, uh, you know, all these objects that we're studying now, that Hannah is studying now, that other people on the team are studying now, 10, 15 years from now, someone could be designing their spacecraft mission, be looking through some big catalog and think, I think that's the perfect asteroid for what we want to do. And it turns out that the experts are the only people who've been looking at this stuff, which you know, there should be more. But for now, MONOS is one of the, you know, the leading surveys for this kind of work, you know, pretty much anywhere. And 
Um, and Hannah, just to uh, recap, and you're taking the data that he's pointing the LDT at, and then you're cataloging it in like specific categories of type of object is that yeah exactly and so I'm basically just interpreting the data so actually getting that information out of it uh interpreting it analyzing it and giving my you know two cents on what I think is this space rock and there are I guess, three different types of space rock that we will be talking about today. Uh, one of these I'd never heard of. Um, in our Again, in our notes, I thought it was funny. Um, Hannah referred to it as like her favorite, D- was it D&D yeah. character? And I was like, yes, girl. Um, that's like the only, uh, the only thing I know in context with the centaur, but we've got asteroid, comet, and centaur. Could, uh, could y'all just provide some context for our viewers, definitely, not for me, um, on what the difference is between all of these objects? Sure. I uh, I think it's actually, if you explain them all at once, it's much easier than explaining the individual classes, right? So asteroids are space rocks, right? They're, you know, from the size of like your apartment all the way up to hundreds and hundreds of miles across They are primarily rocky objects out in space. Some get particularly close to the Earth, but most, as far as we can tell, are out beyond Mars in what's called the asteroid belt. So it's just where all the asteroids are together. The biggest one you've probably heard of called Ceres. And if you haven't, you can Google it. We've been there with a spacecraft. There are great pictures. Um, Comets are, uh, well, comets were discovered first. You know, I feel like almost everyone has some idea of what a comet is, right? You know, you can picture the emoji on your phone, the little ball of gas and dust at the center, and then the cute tail popping off the end, right? Um, Comets are mixtures of rock and ice. So because ice, you know, when you get it too hot, starts to go away, right? Um, The ice flies off the surface of the comet, drags some dust along with it, and that's what causes the tail. So while asteroids are sort of I don't want to say inert. Even though asteroids don't change very rapidly, they're kind of the same for a long time. Comets can change on a week-to-week to to month-to-month basis because they're actively falling apart and ice is going away. Centaurs, you know, like in in mythology, centaurs are half human, half horse. Centaurs are half asteroid, half comet. Some of them, probably most, are not active. They're just balls of ice and dust and and rocks in the outer solar system you know, orbiting even beyond Jupiter that don't look like comets. They don't have the little tail. They don't have the little atmosphere. They're just sitting out there orbiting and doing their own thing, right? Some, some small fraction, you know, maybe 10%, one in 10, do have cometary activity. So they have a little tail. They develop a little atmosphere. So we don't really know, or I suppose when they were discovered, we didn't really know what made them sort of have properties of both asteroids and comets. So the name centaur was chosen because like centaurs are half human, half horse. Centaurs in the solar system are half asteroid, half comet. Silly, but I like <laughs> so it. So I have, I have a few questions. So we've got um, comets have the tail behind it. Um, but usually in depictions of asteroids, I'm thinking of Armageddon because we recently did something on that on the podcast. They also have tails behind them and ice. And then I did look up Ceres, and it says dwarf planet. Um, so I'm probably just going to try to not have you answer all of my questions at once. Cause... 
I I have more okay. more questions now than I think we have room for in our outline. Um, but <laughs> maybe I can try to get some of that at least right after that, and we can go someplace interesting. Yeah. Okay, so Armageddon, you'll be shocked to learn. I know, I know, I know. What and are you about to the, say, Teddy? Wait, that... <laughs> Doctor Teddy. Okay, so first off, yeah, Doctor <laughs> Teddy. Thank you. Um, okay, so first off, what it's you know it's like a movie. Right? What? <laughs> um, but like, so the thing that they show in Armageddon, you know, which is it sort of looks like it's a bunch of cobblestones held together by ice, right? Yep. There's nothing in the solar system that really looks like that, as far as we're aware. Um, so what they tried to essentially, you know, in the 90s, you know, between Armageddon and the other one, Deep mm -hmm. Impact, you know, there was this idea, people were newly realizing, oh, there's lots of stuff that's out there near the Earth. This might be a danger to us someday. We should look into this. And most of the things that get really close to the Earth are asteroids. So I think that's part of the reason they made the movie like that. The problem is, is that asteroids are just rocks, right? Like it would sort of look just like a rock until it got close enough to the earth that started breaking apart when the earth's gravity got too strong. So um, they essentially made it look more like a comet because it would be cooler and it would be more interesting and it would make for a, a movie finale. doing that <laughs> with science. Come on. Boo. I know. Come implausible, on. right? You know, who would ever, who would ever lie in a movie? <laughs> So I have here in our notes that you have an asteroid named after you, which that's pretty cool. How'd you do that? And did they name it Dr. Teddy? <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. That would have been great, actually. I think I would have basically never gotten over that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's named Teddy Coretta, just first name, last name, but really, you know, my first nickname. Well, let's be um, clear. The asteroid did not earn its PhD. So... That's true. Yeah, we don't want to, you know, we can't just start giving everyone PhDs really them out. especially not non-sentient Dumb rocks. space rocks, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the way that you get an asteroid is that whoever found the asteroid gets some time that they can just pick anybody to nominate to get it named after. Um, so in this case, one of my PhD advisors, Vishnu Reddy at the University of Arizona, discovered this asteroid back in 2003. Um, and since... You know, I was his PhD student. I guess he filed the paperwork to name it after me right around the time I got my Aww. PhD. Um, I know. Aww. It's one of the nicest gifts I've ever Cute. been given. Um, and what was even better is that I actually got the email while I was on uh, the LDT. I was using the LDT, the Level Discovery Telescope. So I did actually get to observe my own asteroid. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. Here's an yeah, asteroid. Sure. Things that only happen in astronomy. <laughs> right. I know. And I got to like, I got to tell the people running the telescope, yeah, I need you to point the telescope at Teddy Coretta. And they sort of looked at me puzzled, right? <laughs> They're like, how do we when... point it at you? <laughs> yeah, good try. Yeah, like, I thought you lived in Flagstaff. That's a, that's not really awkward. <laughs> when, we were, when we were writing these notes, um, we kept assuming that it was, oh, well, obviously, because like at Lowell, when you're here for a certain time, you get certain objects in this guy named after you. And Hannah kept saying like, no, 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 it wasn't through Lowell. <laughs> this is like his own thing. Uh, so that's really yeah. cool. <laughs> Dr. Teddy. Yeah, it's yeah, Dr. Dr. Nice Teddy. Dr. Teddy. Yeah. <laughs> <Now> this... <laughs> It makes me feel good every time you treat that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Keep it going. So uh, speaking about ass, 
asteroids. Looks like you have done a lot of work on something called 3200 Pantheon that may potentially pull an Armageddon and hit us. Um, is this true? Speaking of Armageddon. I know, right? Throwback. Uh, so, <laughs> unfortunately, I got, I got, I got two no's for you. Oh. There. Um, yeah, so 3200 Phaethon, um, which is sort of the, um, it's one of these like ancient Greek <laughs> names. So it's, you know, it's, it's not even obvious how do you pronounce exactly it? how to pronounce it in English. Phaethon. Phaethon. Um, what an edgelord asteroid. Yeah, it, okay. I know, right? I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 well. If you're an ancient Greek, like, scholar you might say it phaeton like with a, a harder t oh. and no h okay either way I don't fancy think it, they love their h's like, man okay so no i was thinking about making a joke at the ancient greeks expense but i actually don't know anything about it <laughs> so it's not, not gonna work out too well um so uh the reason that you might have heard about this asteroid which is numbered 3200 and named phaeton um is that it is the parent body, so it is the thing that made the Geminid meteor shower, uh, which is the one that you can probably see most easily around December 15th, December 14th. Also year. one I've never so said out loud because I'm so, I'm like, how do you pronounce that? It's, yeah. Can you say it one more time? Because it's Gemini, like I, but then it's like, no, it's not. Yeah. Can you say it one more time slowly? Yeah. So the constellation is Gemini, but the the meteor shower is the Geminids. The Geminids. So it's not a long I anymore. Okay. So if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's probably the, the meteor shower that you've probably had the greatest chance to see just because the nights are longer in the winter, meaning that you have longer time to see, you know, wait outside and see meteors at night. Um, and the reason that Phaethon is a really interesting object, and it's part of the reason that I spent like a, a whole lot of time during my PhD working on it, maybe too much, um, um, was that, you know, meteor showers, you know, they're dust and rocks out in space that collect, um, you know, that have particular orbits. And when the Earth gets close to them, they impact the top of the atmosphere. And that's what you see as a shooting star. It's dust in space sort of burning up at the top of the atmosphere. And as I was talking about before, asteroids, they kind of just stay the same. They're not really changing. But comets, they're the ones tossing off gas and dust and ice, right? So for a long time, until the discovery of Phaethon, people thought that all meteor showers had to come from comets with zero exceptions. No, that's just a hard rule. Um, but for a long time, we knew where the Geminids were in the sky, and we couldn't find what comet had made them. So in 1983, Phaethon gets discovered. It was actually the first asteroid discovered by a spacecraft. Um, something that I think is super <laughs> neat, but I, <laughs> it's totally cool. If that's if that's not how you feel. About it. <laughs> um, and it, it was it was IRAS, the Infrared Astronomy Ooh. School, um, which was the predecessor to Spitzer, which was in turn the predecessor to the newly uh, launched JWST. I was um, gonna say like, wow, so these they, are really like oppressive and creepy names, and then you come out with Spitzer, so I didn't say yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, Spitzer. It's just like a guy's last name, right? Like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it already has like the kind of personal aspect to it, right? You know, Iras. It's just some letters that you can kind of say. Um, Spitzer. Either way, uh, yeah, Spitzer. You know, but granted, we were talking about the LBT before. So, um, <laughs> Either way, so Phaethon was discovered, and its orbit is basically the exact same as the Geminids, smack dab in the middle of all these little dust and rocks that make up this meteor shower that we can all, or at least many of us in the Northern Hemisphere, can see during the winter. So at the time, people just immediately assumed, okay, so Phaethon's a comet. Bada bing, bada boom. No, no questions to be asked. 
but as we've studied it for the past 30 or something years, it's, it doesn't really share really many properties at all with comets. You know, it's not the right color, the orbit's not right. You know, there's tons of other little details that just don't match up as well. The only thing is that it somehow has this huge meteor shower, one of the biggest and brightest of the year. Um, so even to this day, the, the exact question of, you know, what happened in what order to, you know, piece together all these puzzle pieces, right? You know, like, how do you have this thing that looks like a, an asteroid and a weird asteroid at that? as the thing that made one of the most, you know, uh, large and most beloved meteor showers to humankind. Uh, it's still not really clear. You know, um, I did a lot of work studying Phaethon itself, you know, using telescopes on the ground to see how it reflected light and how that might relate to what it's made out of. Um, and you know, I did some laboratory work too that I can talk about if you like, you don't have to ask me. It's, it's oh, look at the time. Heavy, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, no, yeah, I'm, no. Oh, I'm, no. I'm going through a ton of I'm totally kidding. Um, I just looked at pictures uh, of, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it wrong again. Phaethon. 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 Oh, my God. Think Phaethon. Like Phaethon. Like yeah. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. It, ooh. It, ooh. Um, mm -hmm. There's a picture of it online taken in 2017. It's an interesting photo. Is that the only picture that we have of it? Uh, we haven't visited with the spacecraft yet. So it will be visited. Uh, the, uh, the Japanese space agency, JAXA, is going to visit Phaethon up close um, in, later in the 2020s. I don't remember exactly. Oh, yeah. So that uh, the image you were looking at is uh, Phaethon was observed by the Arecibo Observatory. So this is a radar image. So you're getting to see how like radar is bouncing off the surface in these complex ways. Um, oh, OK. But yes. Yeah, so we're not going to be able to know what Phaethon actually looks up like up close until maybe 2028, 2029, something like that. But part of the reason is that because Phaethon gets so close to the sun, hence the name. Who's the the person from Greek myth who like got so close to the sun? Icarus. That, like, the Icarus. Last melted up. Icarus. Yeah, Phaethon is basically the same story as Icarus with some tweaks. Aww. So that's part of the reason that Phaethon was named like that. It actually gets closer to the sun than Mercury does, so it gets super hot. Um, and then it slingshots back out super far. Exactly. Bipolar um, rock. Yeah, it, it goes from being one of the hottest things in the solar system back to being ice cold within the course of a year or two. It's, it's, it's a really wild She point. does her own thing. Um, <laughs> well, that is super cool. I asked... Hannah in our notes to clarify a question that I had. So Hannah, I'm going to pass it off to you because I'm, yeah. I wanted to know about meteor showers because he's like, oh yeah, for years we can see these showers. Yeah. So the, you know, reason that I know that we can see meteor showers for so long is that they're the path of debris that the earth passes through in its orbit to create these meteor showers is constantly oh. being refueled. And so let's say it is a comet, you know, that comet passes by earth's orbit, you know, depending on its orbit, maybe two to 300 years. And every time it does that, it has its debris trail and it just leaves stuff. And the earth passes through that and we get the meteor showers. So these are like space litter bugs and we just have yeah. to drive through their <laughs> exactly. space crash yeah. every year. And it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. I never knew that. And just in hearing... uh Dr. Teddy explain the differences between these. Hannah, I would think it would could get pretty difficult in your research 
in trying to identify what is a comet and what is a an asteroid at times. Are there times when that is like how do you how do you do that? Tell us your secrets. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mainly don't have to worry about that because we know a decent amount about the near-Earth asteroids. Um, and so I feel like from what I've seen, I don't see a lot of that compared to Teddy. Um, so, yeah. So part of the reason I was really interested in Phaethon, and, and Cody, you hit on a really, really interesting question, is that, you know, say, for instance, some comet's only putting off like a little bit of dust, right? If you were really far away from it, would it really look any different from something that was putting off no dust, right? Like, you know, if you were really far away from a house that, you know, was only burning one log on the fireplace, could you really notice the smoke, right? That's sort of the question we're getting at. And it could be that there's a lot of objects that, you know, could be written down in catalogs, maybe, you know, that we've gotten some data with through Monos or other surveys that we just look at it, think, all right, well, we don't see a tail, therefore it's an asteroid, bada bing, bada boom, it's done. But the thing is, is that that doesn't have to be true. Often, there have been a lot of objects where we first found them, thought they were an asteroid, and then came back years later with bigger telescopes, observing them under better conditions, and noticed, oh, wait a second, do you see that little thing? You know, you're squinting at the image, you're like, I think that's a little tail. And then you have to go back and rewrite all your papers because you realize you have just totally misunderstood what the object is. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's actually like as exciting as it gets, right? right? Because it means that you're learning something new and fundamental about these objects. And part of the reason I, I did so much work on Phaethon and continue to do so is that it's sort of by definition, you know, at the bleeding edge between the fully cometary and the fully asteroidal, because you can't really put it in either box, right? It has yeah. both kinds of properties. And if an asteroid causes meteor showers, then it has a tail a little bit too, right? Or am I... Yeah, it must have at one point, right? Um, so it might not now, but at least recently enough to have made the meteor shower. This thing was throwing stuff off. It was throwing off little dark, uh, you know, little dirt balls and pebbles and rocks that, you know, when they hit the Earth's atmosphere, burn up. And we say, oh, look, you know, it's in the constellation Gemini. That must be a geminid meteor. But we don't know what changed between when it was making the meteor shower and now. And that's the interesting stuff. So I have a question. So... You know, we see meteor showers, we see these, you know, rocks burning up in our atmosphere, and some of them actually land on Earth, hence meteorites. Right. And, you know, something that's being worked on is trying to figure out where these meteorites came from and exactly what object they came from. Do you know if we have any meteorites from Phaethon? Not yet. There's there's some idea. So there's a lot of like complicated stuff, right? The atmosphere is a big place. These meteors hit the top of the atmosphere going really fast. And that's why they burn up, right? It's like friction. You know, you can use sandpaper on stuff that gets warm. Imagine going through the atmosphere at 100 miles an hour. It's a warm place, right? So not every meteor shower, not every kind of orbit that would get to the top of the atmosphere can make it all the way through and land on the ground in one piece, right? That you can go and pick up, go put in front of a microscope. Um, in principle, there should be meteorites from the Geminids and thus from Phaethon, but it's still hard. Um, there was a there was some results a couple of years ago where someone claimed that maybe there were a few pebbles on the ground. <laughs> like that was the extent of what could be found, right? And it landed in the middle of the Spanish desert, so like not many people lived there, hard to get to, not the safest place to go looking. Um, but people have successfully linked meteorites on the ground to individual objects out in space, individual asteroids. Um, 
And that's one of the, like, the biggest ways you can actually learn something really material. You're no longer just looking at a dot in the sky or a comet in the sky. You can start to understand, well, you know, we have the sample on the ground, right? You can go to a lab and figure out exactly what it's made out of. And that means that then you know exactly what that asteroid is made out of. You can start to understand the picture more broadly. Okay, so I'm going to continue on. We're passing through asteroids, and we're going to talk about comets now. Woo! Uh, these are some of my favorite objects because I'm actually named after a comet, so I <laughs> really love them. Um, so I would love it, Teddy, or Dr. Teddy, um, if you could tell us more about comets. Um, I heard we think that the bombardment of comets on the Earth uh, is what potentially brought water here. So comets are made of water. Yeah, so that's like a really interesting question that I'll, I'll circle back to once I've talked about, you know, what comets are, because um, that's like something that we're still figuring out, right, which I think is exciting. Um, so comets, you know, like I said before, they're a mixture of like rock and ice, right? So most comets, as far as we can tell, that ice is mostly water ice. So just like the ice you have in your freezer or, you know, is currently, you know, on top of the San Francisco peaks, right? Oh it's my God, I didn't ice. think about that. Okay, I feel yeah. real dumb. Um, yeah. No, it's totally cool. There, the thing is, is that there is other stuff, right? You know, when if you you know take a big telescope and point some fancy instrument at it, you're going to see lots of things in comets, you know, flowing off the surface with the gas and the dust. It's not just water ice and it's not just a rock. You know, there's other kinds of ices like carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, neither of which are, you know, nice to you. Um, you know, there's cyanogen, which is, you know, a part of cyanide. Again, not so nice to you. There's lots and lots of other compounds that are all built up in there. But water ice is one of the biggest components. It's one of the things that there's the most of. Um, so for a long time, maybe until 20 years ago or something, people really thought, you know, where did the Earth's oceans come from? Where did, you know, where did all this water come from? And comets were a really good idea, right? Comets occasionally come pretty close to the Earth. They have a lot of water in them. Maybe that's a good way to do it. Um, but maybe for the past 20 years or so, people have had some other ideas. You know, we've started realizing that some asteroids have some ice, some water-bearing minerals as well. Um, so maybe that's part of it. Maybe the Earth just formed with water as well, another option. Um, you mean it just think... happened? Water just happened? Like, it just was like, oh, when we're forming all of these other metals together, there's water there as well? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so let me let me rephrase it in a way that maybe is a little bit better. Um, so for instance, like, you know, the Earth is forming out of all this different stuff, right? At the dawn of the solar system, you know, all these, you know, combinations of different rocks, different materials from different places within the solar system. Maybe some of the stuff that it was forming with just carried some water with it. So it's not that the water had to be like given to the Earth or like deposited later. It's just, it was kind of always there and something just had to happen. And people have suggested, for instance, that, um, if you actually look at the gases that come out of volcanoes, you know, water is one of them. There's water inside the Earth's mantle. So maybe there's no just kidding. enough there. We don't need to worry about it getting delivered, um, hmm. you know, with, you know, a hundred year, hundred million year delivery, not like Amazon Prime levels of, you know. <laughs> um, so um, either way, in the past few years, people have started maybe to like at least be more willing to consider the comet option again. Um, 
there's some chemical differences between the water that's in comets, or at least in some comets, and the water that's in the oceans. They don't have exactly the same composition, the exact same isotopes. Um, but in the past few years, we've found a few more comets that actually look just like the Earth. So I think for a long time, the pendulum sort of swung all the way against comets as you know, some reason we have an ocean. And now in recent years, we're starting to realize that maybe the door's still open, that maybe comets aren't the only way to solve this problem. You said comets right? look like the Earth? Like in terms of the composition of their water. So for instance, if you just took a bucket of ocean water and put it in your lab and you went out and grabbed a piece of a comet and put it in your lab and you melted it all down, you could like look at the, you know, the, uh, the way that the oxygen that's inside the water. And for a long time, people thought that cometary water and ocean water looked different. But it turns out at least some comets, their water looks just like Earth water. So not like that's the subset of the point, if that makes sense. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, okay. And so comets, they have lots of organic material too, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you ever have seen a picture of a comet, you can, you know, you listening at home can Google pictures of comets. Uh, the one that I'm about to say, you will not be able to immediately spell, but Comet 67P is what you should Google. The full name is 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at him. Alrighty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, so you can go up and look at pictures. You know, we visited comets up close, and you can see that their surfaces are dark. They're super dark, darker than charcoal, actually. And that might not make sense if you just heard me say, oh, they're made out of a lot of ice, right? You know, you've seen snow. Snow is bright. The thing is, is that basically... Because ice is so much of it, you know, there's still other stuff mixed in, be it, you know, rock species or, you know, minerals and also things called organics. So these are, you know, molecules with lots and lots of carbon in them. They're super important and super, um, you know, super frequent, super abundant in the outer solar system. But basically imagine you could have the purest ice you want, but if you just mix in a little bit of coal dust, a little bit of, you know, um, you know, tar, the whole surface is still going to look black, even though there's a lot of like pure white stuff mixed in, right? It's, dirty it's a really good mask. Yeah. So when Hannah said um, organics, I was kind of a lead up for my, uh, my weirdo question. What about life forms or single celled life forms or basically aliens? <laughs> How about those Tommy aliens, aliens. <laughs> flying on these comets? Um, I brought this up in way too many podcasts so like listeners i'm sorry i'm going to bring it up again though um there's that concept of earth getting help in life from comet seeding um you're talking about organics being frozen in ice like i can't help but think of the thing here um what's the yeah, likelihood of that rules. oh it's the best it's the best yeah. one yeah it's the best all right yeah this podcast is actually now about the thing well, i'm down first of all it's impossible you can drop off yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, have you so, seen the Have you seen the remastered thing, like in 4K? Yeah, I saw it at a movie theater. I had to pause. Friend. I had to pause it. I was like, my heart, and I watched it a thousand times. Um, God, it's good. Yeah, I, I handled it all right, but I was introducing one of my friends to the thing, and he was driving me home afterwards, and he was just like, just like, I can't do this. This was okay. Too so, much. so quick off topic. What did you think of the idea of alien life form buried in the ice? Okay, so like I think the thing is really cool because like it doesn't like it doesn't like invent sciencey reasons to explain its fundamentally semi-fantastical plot, right? Yeah. Like, ultimately, you know, they could have found the thing in a cave or at the bottom of the ocean. It didn't really matter. The point was that it 
you know, represented something about humans and as a result was fearful because it, you know, it made us think about ourselves in a new way. Um, it's not like trying to define the force in Star Wars. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Exactly. With a science <laughs> equation. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. It's just you just do a blood test and you can just tell how many midichlorians there are, right? Whatever. Right. Like, um, but, you know, instead, you know, the movie is just about like mistaken identity imposters in a way I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. Psychological thriller is good. Yeah. Plus, like, Kurt Russell has that incredible beard. Oh, the He's beard. Always, it's, it's so the good. The kid, <laughs> like, on the roller skates. I'm just. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I, I so good. Imagine being at the South Pole and all you have to do is listen to Stevie Wonder. That sounds great, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like they just they just drink all day and smoke cigarettes and roll around on roller skates and then like research. I guess at some point, but um... yeah, and play virtual chess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's just pretend Love that's that. how all sciences work. Um, but yeah, so how how likely is the thing hap- happening on a comet? Okay, yeah. So I'll, I guess I'll just. You know, sorry to anyone who's listening to this for who's hoping for a more fantastic answer, but no, there is. We can no make one real... up in post. We can just edit something more. Yeah, you'll jump over me terrifying. saying something like, "Actually, comets are all aliens, right? All aliens." Um, <laughs> it's okay. gonna be oh, Wesley's voice. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were a couple of like super out there papers written in the seventies saying like, "Well, basically, just like what you were saying, like we've looked at comets. They've got water, ice. They've got all these weird organic molecules. That sure sounds." like conditions where, you know, life could form, right? Maybe the thing is, is that there's just no evidence for this, right? You know, we've looked closer with bigger telescopes. We've gone up close. There's nothing. However, that's not, I think, the end of the story. And I think part of the questions that, you know, you three were asking were closer, like, well, you know, are these things related to life, right? And to get back to that question earlier of, like, did comets, you know, um, create the Earth's oceans? Well, if comets hit the Earth, we know it's depositing a lot of organic material, right? Um, it could be very well that, you know, in the earliest, earliest, earliest days of the Earth, things like comets or, you know, asteroids from super far out in the solar system could have been part of the reason that the early Earth had access to these organic molecules that then started down that process that then eventually made life somewhere later. But there's no evidence that comets like have life on them, right? Um, it's not like if we went to a comet and cracked it open, we'd find the thing in the block of ice at the core, right? <laughs> Be cool, That'd be pretty great. But, you know, <laughs> but even in the thing, like uh, the things fly in a spaceship, right? So you it know, is, are clearly true. sort of old hat to whatever the thing is. True, <laughs> true. Okay, but what about, there's these things that we know, interstellar comets. Okay, I know you've done work on two I Borisov, so what about that? Okay, yeah, so this is a this is like a can of worms. Two I Borisov uh, is that yeah, what so you said I'll, the name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as of 2017, we've now found two objects, so small solar system objects, you know, comets and asteroids that formed elsewhere, right beyond the solar system. They formed around some other star. By total chance, they have wandered close to us, close enough for us to point telescopes at and wonder the same things that we wonder about Earth comets and Earth asteroids. Like, what are they made out of? Why do they have the orbit they have? What, like, what's their history, right? Um, so the second one that was discovered, you know, they, they get the number and then the letter I, because they're interstellar, so 2I, oh. um, was discovered by this uh, astronomer, Genity Borisov, so 2I Borisov. Gotcha. Um, was the second of these two objects, and it's the one that I got to study, thankfully, during my PhD. Um, and at least 
tentatively, um, you know, this is a this is like perhaps worthy of like several podcasts in length at really any level of complexity. So I'll just say the big picture, which is it sorta maybe looks like solar system comets, but not fully, right? Solar system those... comets, meaning like the a comet that we see. Me, sorry. Yeah, what? yeah. So like <laughs> a comet that formed here, right? So like a comet that formed around our star, you know, and has spent its entire life in our solar system. We have an idea of sort of what those are made out of. We've been looking at them for a long time, but to Iborisov, this interstellar comet, one of the first questions we had when it came into the solar system for the first time back in 2019 was, okay, well, does it look like the comets that formed nearby, right? You know, it's like meeting a kid from another school. Eventually you still realize, oh, okay, it's still a kid, right? Like a kid is friend, <laughs> right? But at first you're like, what, you know, what are kids from that school even like, right? Um, <laughs> It turns out that the answer is that it's sort of similar and sort of not. And frankly, it seems like no one really agrees on the extent of how weird this thing was. Um, but I think this is a, you know, for those of you listening at home, or, you know, you three, this is a really interesting part of astronomy and planetary science to kind of keep an eye on. You know, when you're flipping through the paper, you're, you're going on Twitter and you see news stories about interstellar comets, interstellar objects. I think this is a field that's going to really change in the next few years. And the reason I say that is that we only know of two right now. Right. And both of them are weird in different ways that we don't really know the context for. But, you know, over the next few years, it's anticipated that we're going to find more. That number is going to go from two to three to four to five. Right. And eventually we're going to be able to start to understand the actual differences, not just individual objects against our entire solar system, but an entire population of objects that formed elsewhere compared to us. Right. Um, and that's just going to take some time. Um, so comets were formed similar to how like uh, pla planets were formed and other stuff formed in our solar system is just a bunch of star crud that is in orbit somehow um, and it's but it's not a planet. Is this like a Pluto situation where it's planet? It's not a planet. It's a yeah, asteroid. So like it's another thing. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, I was talking earlier about how the earth formed about all different kinds of stuff coming together, right? You know, these are all things that if they'd stuck around to today, they hadn't gotten built into the earth. They hadn't gotten sucked into Venus. We'd call it an asteroid. Sometimes people will say things like, instead of calling, you know, them small bodies, which is what I might call them, the comets and asteroids of the solar system, objects that are nowhere near as big as the earth or as big as Jupiter. Sometimes people call them, you know, remnants or sort of the last surviving objects from, you know, the start of the solar system when, you know, the earth was being formed. They didn't Jupiter join the club. Being... They didn't, they didn't pick a club and join it. They stayed out on their own. Exactly. So, gotcha. you, know, you know, it gets hotter as you get closer and closer to the sun. So the inner solar system is less and less and less ice because that's hard to keep ice, you know, stable when it's hot out, right? So comets formed generally in the outer solar system. So all the stuff that formed Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, those are all comets, right? The things that are still here there that we're observing now as comets, those are just the lucky ones which didn't get sucked up. Um, so when you're studying comets, when you're studying asteroids, you know, obviously you're studying these really cool things that are in the solar system now, right? And that means that they're worth studying on their own. But there's this second level, a little bit bigger picture, which thinks like, we're studying things that are like, they formed when the sun formed, right? They formed when the earth formed. We're looking back in time if we want to understand what their properties are. Um, and, you know, 
if it's a comet, it's still got a bunch of ice. That ice has been cold for a really long time. It's preserving material from the start of the solar system um, in a way that's just crazy, right? It's super cool. <laughs>
same thing with comets. If you push comets too far out in the solar system, all the ice is just super cold, super stable. It doesn't want to do anything. And centaurs are in that sweet spot where they've moved inwards from like around Pluto. And they're not usually quite warm enough to develop a comet-like tail, but some of them under some circumstances do. Um, and they're really interesting because, you know, they're a good way to kind of study the entire process, right? You know, comets don't spend most of their lives warm. They spend most of their lives super cold. And when you're looking at centaurs, you're looking at things that only recently, in the past few hundred thousand years, started to warm up at all since like the mm. dawn of time, right? Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and they're called, I was looking them up, uh, icy planetesimals, which is kind of a cute name. Um, and so we have also, when I was looking up, Ceres, uh, dwarf planet Ceres, one of Pluto's buddies. Um, the first thing it said is a the largest object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. So, but it's not an asteroid. The thing is, is that it's this is one of those situations where, like, you know, I, I don't need to dissuade anyone from spending tons of time on Wikipedia because I spent like an hour a day on Wikipedia. I got <laughs> it's a weird habit I picked up during the pandemic. I can't quit it now, right? Mm -hmm. um, Wikipedia holes. But so. So for instance, you could very much say Pluto or um, uh, Ceres is, it is a minor planet. It is the only minor planet in the asteroid belt. That's the end of the story. You could also just say it's the largest asteroid. I think both are fine. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, the thing is once things get big enough, people start wanting to like try to find new ways to classify them, right? Like, and if you try to compare, for instance, Ceres to the other asteroids, it's big enough and we've studied it in enough detail. It's kind of hard to put it back into that asteroid shaped box, right? You know, right. It's its own world. It has its own little attributes. Um, so even though, yeah, I guess on paper, I could say that Ceres is an asteroid and no scientist is going to like laugh at me. Mm -hmm. I think everyone would agree that that's like, it's like part of the story, right? Yeah. You know, it's only part of why we care about it. Well, it's smaller than Sharon's, than uh, Pluto's moon, right? So I think it's, so yeah, I think it's out like, there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so like if you found something like Ceres out beyond Neptune, there are tons and tons of objects that size, right? But Ceres is the biggest thing that's left in the asteroid belt. Um, and there's lots of things on it that look like it formed in the outer solar system too. So we don't really know a lot about Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty far. Where Ceres formed and, and you know, I, I also I'm not an expert, so I, I don't intend to go down a rabbit hole that I will just be dragging you through with. <laughs> So moving closer back toward Neptune, toward the centaurs, um, which again just sounds like I'm in some sort of fairy tale story setting. <laughs> toward yeah. Neptune, the centaurs roam. Um, <laughs> how how big are these boys? That's yeah, that's a great question. So the biggest one that we know of, it's like I don't I don't know how to convert between kilometers and miles off the top of my head, but it's about 220 kilometers across. Um, so what, a 5K is three miles. So I'm not going to do this live. It's like it's like 130 miles across. Pretty good. Right. Um, Hannah, Hannah wrote in the notes, I think this was Hannah probably writing this, saying it has rings. There's one that has rings. Yeah, so the largest uh, uh, centaur uh, is this object that Hannah's written in the notes, 10199 Chiriclo, um, or Cariclo, again, depending on your, your adherence to this you know, traditional Greek naming scheme. It was the fifth object found in the solar system after Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune have rings, right? Like, you know, I think when kids hear about Saturn, the first thing they think of is that it has rings, right? That's like the coolest thing about it. 
And it turns out that even things this small, you know, 120, 130 kilom uh, miles across, can themselves still have these tiny little cute ring systems. Um, and we haven't seen these up close yet, even though I think this is like probably one of the best places we could go and visit in the outer solar system, hands down. Mm -hmm. um, but it was discovered through an occultation. So people kind of found it by accident while they were trying to do a different kind of study. Um, and we've since found a few other situations like this too. There's one object out in the Kuiper belt that also has rings, Haumea. Um, but I think one of the takeaway points, you know, that might be particularly interesting is that, you know, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the centaurs. You know, some act like comets, some have little cute tails. Most don't. They just go through their orbits with no changing. Some, or at least one, has a full ring system. You know, a process that until people found it, people would have said was impossible, right? There's just no way for something that small to be able to support this kind of weird feature. Um, and we're still finding out some of these basic facts about the centaurs now because it took the advent of huge telescopes and people slowly starting to realize how important they were for people to like have the time, interest in, in you know, money, frankly, to start looking for these fine details and start finding these interesting little tidbits along the way. It's interesting looking at, uh, I think this is a sort of guess drawing at what this may look like. What was it called? 10199 Chariklo? Chariklo? Car Chariklo? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Both of you are right, technically. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, just looks like a big old egg or like, um, you know, I, I keep saying like, wow, it looks just like rocks on Earth. But listening to you guys explain it, it literally is the same like rocks on Earth were just rocks that conformed to like, you know, what Earth was trying to do. These guys are road yeah. buddies doing their own yeah. thing, but it's the same thing. Yeah. So, you know. Again, you know, no artist impression is perfect as much as I do like that one. Um, but yeah, so some of the stuff, if you went and like, you know, looked at all the minerals, if you just like, you know, took a shovel and scooped up some centaur, some of the minerals would be stuff that's super common on Earth, right? You know, there's going to be water ice, which is thankfully, at least for now, very common on the Earth. Um, and I think that's one of these things that I really like about the outer solar system, right? Is that it seems like this faraway place with all these weird oddballs and all this stuff we don't understand, but like, I don't know, like you look at Pluto and it's still like, it's like water ice, right? It's nitrogen. You know, it's like rocks you've heard of. Um, and that doesn't mean that all the fine details match up to the Earth. In most cases, not really. But I think it's one of these things that I really like is that the same kinds of materials throughout the entire solar system can create like totally different places that look totally different and have totally different properties, right? But it's all the same building blocks deep down. This is totally random. Uh, you were talking about how centaurs have minerals similar to Earth. So I know that like asteroid mining is something that we are like going towards. Would would we be going towards like centaur asteroid mining, mining too? Yeah. Asteroid mining. Asteroid mining. Part of the space miners. <laughs> what? Minus uh, space pickaxe. You know? yeah. <laughs> a space little mining helmet with a space little light. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so part of the problem is that the centaurs are like far away, right? So the centaurs are all between Jupiter and Neptune, right? So when people talk about mining asteroids or mining the moon, part of the reason is that they're close by, right? It's always just going to be cheaper to get things from nearby unless you really need to go somewhere else. Uh, so that's part of the reason that 
You know, people only talk about mining the asteroids for stuff that's hard to get on the Earth, right? Like rare metals. Um, when it comes to, for instance, mining, yeah, I know. Um, and when it comes to, for instance, like mining something further out in the solar system, it gets harder and harder. You know, you have to pay for all the fuel to get there and back. You know, a whole lot of the stuff that's on, you know, things like comets or centaurs, it's going to be ice, right? So like, as soon as you touch it, it's probably going to get too warm. How do you deal with that? It's always just going to be a simpler case to just go find some asteroid that gets close to the Earth. It's made out of like pure metal. You don't have to even have to do anything to it. And you know, there are some asteroids like that, right? Um, but in principle, like, you know, I don't anticipate, you know, anybody setting up like a mining camp on, on 67P anytime soon, right? Like it's it's just, it's not going to make any sense. It's not going to be safe and it's not going to make anyone any money. So we're it's not, not Star Wars times yet. We can't have mining colonies. Not ready. What's it, with, what's it with everything in Star Wars? Like every planet is like exactly perfect or exactly a desert. Like mm-hmm. that's <laughs> why I prefer Firefly because I feel like it's a good balance of like, yeah, there's a bar and a hospital, but also we're a mining college. Like it's not just so extreme. Yeah. Of course, Firefly is the most realistic. Let's mm-hmm. yeah, be yeah. real. The issue so I've had with all those. Oh, never mind. Continue. This is off no. Topic. What if you're Go talking ahead. about Firefly? <laughs> I was just gonna say the issue with like all of those shows and movies is everyone can breathe on every single planet, which <laughs> yeah. is so unrealistic. And they all have translators. Like, exactly. <laughs> uh, every time I watch one of those, I'm like, that's the one thing. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> this perfect combination of oxygen and. Right. Yeah, exactly. like also everyone uses the same money, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That too. How how is how would that ever stay the case? Like, Star Trek fixed like, that. Just no money. What? Okay. Yeah. No money at That's all. What? We have no problems with that. Somehow, all of us, none of us, get paid. Um, right. Well, they're getting paid an experience. It's they're getting all paid an experience points. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm <laughs> having bad memories of my days working in. Uh, freelance <laughs> yeah same experience points <laughs> so speaking of just working together i have a question um this is sort of off topic of just the definitions of these um objects and more about the work between you dr teddy and hannah um since we have both of you here on an episode, uh, I would love it if you could give us a peek into what it's like doing this kind of research. Like, what's th- what are the hours like? Where do you study? Wh- you know, how often do you meet? Or that kind of like behind the scenes look at how that goes, at least on your team. Yeah, at least for me, I mainly work my own hours so I can put in however much I want to, however little I want to. Um, and then I can kind of work whenever. So my schedule's kind of all over the place. Sometimes I'm up at 8am and um, I can do work early, but most of the time I'm up at, you know, let's say 3am doing work. And so that's, what's nice about it is I can do it whenever I want, wherever I want really, because again, it's a, it's a lot of data analysis, just sitting in front of my computer. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to use the telescope, but I'm hoping, you know, as I get more older and get more experience, um, I can start actually taking data. But that's kind of what it looks like for me. It's just 
really whatever I feel like it. So I, I really enjoy that part of my job. Um, I feel really, really fortunate to be able to do that. And so that's, that's my part. Teddy kind of is all over the place. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. Well, you get to use the telescope, you know, like yeah. you get to do the actual fun stuff. Like you get to use a telescope, you get, you get to go in the lab and, you know, do lab stuff instead of just sitting in front of the computer, which I do a lot of. It's true. Yeah. No, I think Hannah totally hit it on the head. You know, one of the, one of the perks of, of being, you know, in the space sciences generally, but also, you know, in this sort of the subfield that you're in is that, you know, the only real schedule that like has to get you know, uh, held to is, you know, if you have telescope time, you better well be using it, right? Um, from then on out, you know, some projects take weeks, some take months, some take years. So, you know, depending on the kind of work you want to do, you can kind of naturally get into the swing of it, you know, setting your own schedules, setting your own priorities in a way that I think is really good. One thing that I think has changed for me as I've gotten like a little bit further into the field is that, you know, sometimes it's nice to have like a schedule, right? And I think especially, you know, when I was an undergraduate, when I was in grad school, you know, I thought like, well, I don't really need a schedule. What I need is coffee, right? I just yeah. can just keep <laughs> drinking coffee and my problems will sort themselves out. Of course, out. easily, um, right? Yeah, it's, and great, it, it, it does work. So, you know, I wish it didn't, but it totally does. Um, um, either way, so like, you know, as even though I still have to get up in the middle of the night and observe, you know, maybe once a week, you know, once every other week, depending on what time of year it is, you know, I still try to come into the office. I work here in my office at the Lowell Observatory and I still do my work on the computer, right? But it is it is a nice reprieve that sometimes I can stop answering emails. I can stop doing all the boring work on the computer and instead just like take cool pictures of stuff with huge telescopes in a way that I find really interesting, right? Like that's as good a job as you can really get. And, you know, obviously I'm thankful for it as, you know, <laughs> as, as much as I can be. It's, it's, it's good, it's a good gig. taken up way more of your time than we promised yeah. so thank you for uh, oh you're not even gonna ask me about the movies huh that's fun i know well we have if you're interested always welcome to come back on uh the podcast and talk about the thing uh, oh, if yeah, everyone yeah. who's yeah. willing to record with us has like three hours in their day uh but yes thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us yeah, yeah. thank you so much thank for having you. me on it was great yeah. yeah, and to our uh, lovely audience, come check out our Twitter and you can use our hashtag, hashtag AskStarStuff to ask us any questions for our next couple episodes. So it'll be really cool. Also, Twitter, if you're listening to this, verify us, please. Thank you. Please verify right. us. Finally. <laughs> I'm not verified. I should, I should get verified first. I'm the doctor. Right? We have, <laughs> excuse me. Um, Twitter, we have Dr. Teddy on our staff. Have you heard of him? Maybe verify yeah. us. <laughs> Maybe verify us. Uh, this, this podcast is going to make me sound so stuck up. <laughs> Dr. Teddy. Dr. Teddy. Theodore. Dr. Theodore, please. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 